Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Christmas Eve, as Christians celebrate the birth of the prophet Jesus, with an appraisal of the relationship between church and state, made more precarious with the new House Speaker, who is an ardent believer of historical fiction when it comes to the Founder's intent with the First Amendment, which, if Mike Johnson gets his way, could put us on a path towards intolerance and theocracy. Joining us is Anne Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was a director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. Her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version, and she will be speaking at the Palm Springs International Film Festival on January the 10th about the new film Bad Faith, Christian Nationalism's War on Democracy, which is based on her book Shadow Network. Then we'll play an interview from our archives broadcast in October with Astra Taylor, a documentary filmmaker, writer and political organiser. She's the director of What is Democracy and the author of Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, Democracy May Not Exist, But We Will Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winner, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She's the co-founder of The Debt Collective, and her latest book is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. We will discuss the threats to our democracy and what will bring us together as we celebrate the holidays. And before we begin, as the year rapidly comes to a close, many are looking for tax deductions, so I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And on this Christmas Eve, we're joined by Anne Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts of El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalism and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Raid in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And there is also a documentary associated with Shadow Network that will be premiering January the 10th at the Palm Springs International Film Festival, Bad Faith, Christian Nationalism's Unholy War. On democracy, and Anne will be there to speak at the premiere. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson. Thank you. Well, that uh, documentary, Bad Faith: Christian Nationalism's Unholy War on Democracy, is so uh, uh, timely because we have a Christian nationalist now in the third most powerful 
uh, position in our politics as the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and uh, he is close to this uh, this bogus historian, David Barton, who is, writes pseudo-historical nonsense about how it turns, uh, turns the separation of church and state on its head, and in fact, which means essentially that Mike Johnson is a threat to the First Amendment, and that's a very fundamental part of the United States Constitution. So do you see the new speaker as a threat to the U.S. Constitution? Well, I see him as one element of a networked threat. Uh, Basically, the organizations that were behind the Trump presidency have realized that he is not a sure bet at this moment. So these organizations, which are networked through the Council for National Policy, which I wrote about in Shadow Network, uh, actually created Mike Johnson's political career. He credits them for creating him as a politician uh, in a speech that he gave to the CNP and I wrote about in The Washington Spectator. So this guy, you know, he's young, he's inexperienced, he's the least experienced speaker in the House for, you know, in, in our lifetimes, Comes seems to come out of nowhere, but he was actually uh, selected and groomed for this kind of position from the time he was a student, uh, according to him. So, yes, he's a threat to the Constitution because these people are the same people that tried to overturn the election many different ways. They're also uh, exploring their relationship with the No Labels organization, which is designed to be a spoiler for a Democratic uh, victory in the elections, and have just proposed a coalition government, which doesn't exist in the American Constitution, but they think that's another way that they can exercise a, a kind of soft coup. I mean, he comes across as being sort of non-confrontational and, and, you know, has a sort of pleasant smile. But my understanding is he's a tough operator and and he basically, behind the scenes, engineered his own rise. And they they had they were so dysfunctional, the Republicans, they, they couldn't afford any more dysfunction, so he slipped himself in there. Um, well, I would take exception to that, Ian, because he had the Freedom Caucus pushing him with a bulldozer. And when you say the Republicans, you still have remnants of the traditional Republican Party uh, who have experience working across the aisle to pass legislation. And the Freedom Caucus has gathered more and more power and has acted to defeat the traditional Republicans and where necessary to cut them off at the knees, which is what happened to Kevin McCarthy. So Johnson didn't have the the ability to do this on his own. I mean, he he doesn't, you know, have the, the, the weight. He had the Freedom Caucus pushing him very, very energetically. But I think the, the ties to Trump, given how he, he, uh, he was the lead person on trying to decertify Biden's victory and bring about this stop the steal big lie. He clearly wants Trump, does he not? The whole point of having Trump would be that uh, you would have somebody that would be willing to break the rules and eviscerate the constitutions and, and, and keep himself in power. But 
in doing so, he would be furthering the, the ideology of Johnson and the Christian right, would he not? Well, I think that, you know, from the beginning, when the Christian right uh, got behind Trump, there were a number of never Trumpers in their ranks, and they accepted reluctantly the idea that he was the best way to get what they wanted. Now, there is a lot of uh, now dissension within their ranks and, and you know, uh, reasonable fear that his various lawsuits or some other complication could derail him. Um, so, you know, even if he runs a successful primary campaign, he's not a sure bet. Um, so I, these people are all about having thing. They've, they've always preferred candidates like uh, Ted Cruz, who is one of them, um, but he just seems to have a charisma deficit that has not allowed him to get traction. Um, and that's why it's so important to look at the No Labels Party and the different options that they could implement to have their guy in office, whether it's Trump or an alternate. And Ted Cruz's father is a, is a, a dominionist, right? Uh, Absolutely. An extreme version of, of Christian nationalists that... Jesus Christ is actually the head of state, in case you missed that. His father is fascinating because he was actually a pro-Castro Cuban back in the day during the revolution and then uh, came to the United States and became uh, a very uh, emphatic Christian nationalist himself. I've seen him in person and his prayers are quite strident and quite political, and they trot him out at their political meetings for the CNP partner organizations. And people like you and I, uh, he refers to us as as heathens and evil people. We're not his cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are on Christmas Eve talking about Christian nationalism, and it may seem heretical to some people. The capture of Christianity by the right in this country is in itself a heresy because the prophet Jesus did not carry an assault rifle. He did not hate homosexuals. He didn't fly around in Gulfstream jets and shake down poor people for money. How did it get so distorted? And now their champion, as we've been talking about, Mike Johnson, is in a very powerful position to impose his narrow, dogmatic, and somewhat cruel version of Christianity on the rest of us, particularly uh, the more vulnerable people that he wants to... I don't know, what does he want to do with homosexuals, do you know? I mean, he seems to be obsessed with homosexuality. Well, their movement is obsessed with homosexuality, and especially with really brutal persecution of trans people. in in a in a way that is shocking to me um and and restricting their civil and political rights in ways that are flagrantly against the spirit of the constitution denial of service to people based on their sexuality which you know in and you can you can kind of play that out. Oh, you can't have somebody bake you cake. Oh, somebody doesn't have to register you to be married. Well, at what point does that go where you're hit to a car by a car and you go to an emergency room and the the fundamentalist doctor says, no, it's against my 
religion to treat a gay person or a trans person. I mean, it's just shocking and deplorable. And that's a word that we have had arise. But, you know, I, I just deplore this cr- cruelty uh, and, and deprivation of rights. Now, I would like to say a word concerning Christians, because people talk about the capture of Christianity, but you've got millions and millions of Christians who want nothing to do with this movement. You know, there's a fair amount of writing about the Christian left who has spokespeople in the media, but there is a very quiet Christian center where, uh, and, you know, I, I just came back from Oklahoma talking to pastors saying this, you know, we were not, we didn't go into the church to be political. We went into the church to to be spiritual. And we have all of these forces that are trying to to push us into this role and we don't want to go. I mean, you have an organization like the American Values Coalition, which represents pastors who are really trying to maintain their role in a community of faith, which does not involve telling people what party to vote for. That was just never part of the job description. Um, so, so the problem with these silent Christians is that they've spent their entire lives being told that Christianity doesn't belong in the church. And yet they're being assaulted by people who are breaking that, that norm. So do you stoop to their level and come back at them with politics? Or do you stick to your principles, which means remaining silent in a time of crisis? So I just feel that this sector of the American Christian population, which may indeed be the majority, um, has been unrepresented in the conversation in a way that doesn't serve us well. Well, is that a reflection, though, of the of the broader political problem we have in this country, the one that Liz Cheney is warning us about, that we're sleepwalking into into dictatorship? There's 35% probably of the MAGA people, and so the, the 65% are the ones that are sleepwalking. So if if the a minority of Christo-fascists have, have uh, usurped, captured the patriotic high ground and and confiscated and usurped the Bible, there's still a majority out there to counter them, right? But you, how do you mobilize that majority? Well, And, I, and in I, fact, they're I, against politics, so <laughs> you have a fundamental yeah, problem. And, and personally, what I believe is that you talk to them about the role of Christians and democracy with a little d. Um, because one thing that our forefathers did achieve um, was was creating a country in which everyone was free to worship in the way they chose, you know, or not worship at all, right? And after all of these incredibly bloody wars in Europe, including in, you know, your country, mm-hmm. over whether you're going to be a Protestant or a Catholic or what kind of Protestant you're going to be, et cetera, et cetera, they said, no, let's let's have a society of mutual respect, the government will run our day-to-day affairs and people can worship as they choose. Now, what you have with these fundamentalists is the attempt to impose their system of worship on everyone else through the government, which is 
you know, decidedly not. I mean, it's it's decidedly against the spirit of the Constitution. And, you know, our country could not have been created otherwise because you had to have the Catholics in Maryland and the Congregationalists in Massachusetts and the Anglicans in New York City sit down together and create a form of government that served them all, including the deists who were like Thomas Jefferson, who were not, who did not have allegiance to any of these. So, you know, as, as you say, what these people do, you know, they, they work among what you might call low information voters uh, to, to a large extent. And people like David Barton, the historian, the ersatz historian you just mentioned, cook up these fables that are have, have no grounding in the evidence. And people buy them lock, stock, and barrel without going back and looking at the actual historical record. Um, and, and because they're from a belief system that relies on a kind of authoritarian approach, once they identify an authority, they tend to line up and vote as they're told. So we need to come up with information systems and media and education, reinforce education, that just brings people back to the facts. Well, but that's why we've got to take on Mike Johnson, because he's, he's the anti-fact yeah, he's but but he's part of a larger machine, well, and that machine has its own media. It has its own radio stations. It has its own uh, online platforms. It has its own television broadcasters. It has celebrity spokespeople like Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA. Mm -hmm. um, and and again, you create what I call the wallpaper effect, where people in a lot of of swing states are surrounded by this anti-factual information and told that there's no other way a Christian can vote. When you mentioned earlier about me coming from the land of Oliver Cromwell, um, <laughs> I actually come from Australia, so you, you're... Oh, sorry, you're, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. You're descended from religious fanatics and I'm descended from convicts, so choose your poison. There we go. <laughs> You're descended from people who were <laughs> persecuted by religious fanatics who believed in hanging little boys for stealing bread. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little, though. You, you talked about the religious left as along with the center, the silent center. Back in the original Gilded Age, and arguably we are in the second Gilded Age now, in fact, I don't think there's much doubt about that, in the first Gilded Age, at the end of the of the nineteenth uh, century, the William Jennings Bryan was a powerful political figure, and there was a religious left. You know, the urban poor and the rural poor flocked around him. And even though, of course, he's famous for the Scopes trial, he was, in some respects, had a a uh, a kind of social democratic platform. So what happened to that? I mean, obviously, you know, the plutocrats, McKinley outspent, I think he outspent William Jennings Bryan about 80 to 1 or something it was, extraordinary. And then shortly thereafter, the plutocratic candidate getting 
elected, he was assassinated, and then you had the accidental presidency of Teddy Roosevelt. But let's talk a little bit about William Jennings Bryan and the religious left and what happened to it, because it was a powerful movement back then. Yeah, and as it happens, I spent part of my childhood in Nebraska, where William Jennings Bryan was from, and he's still revered. And part of what was going on then was an agricultural economy crisis, where farm prices had dropped terribly, and there was all kinds of economic disruption by the advent of of the railroads, which changed everything about the market. And as it happened, it often benefited the financiers and the railroad magnates and the bankers. And it's not a million miles away from what happened to us with the disruption of the internet, right? The big tech people and their financiers made out like bandits while everybody else was still trying to figure out how things were going to work, right? So, so Brian was able to tap into this anger at the Eastern bankers and represent the interests of the uh, disgruntled and, and struggling farm population, many of whom were recent European immigrants, right, from, from Germany and Scandinavia and so on, and, and really wield them as a voting block. Well, what happens now is that those same populations are angry and feel that the Democratic Party represents the bankers and the financiers and the tech people, right? So you've got kind of these political allegiances flipped where the MAGA philosophy goes after these populations who tend to be still white, older, Protestant, high propensity voters, right? And say, we hear you and we're here for you. And the Democrats don't give you the time of day because they're all about urban minorities, right? Uh, they're all about Black Lives Matter. They're all about, you know, LGBTQ population. We're all about you. And this has been happening over a number of years. While I think the Democratic Party has kind of sat it out and not really tuned into the voting populations they're losing in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and, and you know, other formerly Democratic states. So just to back to Christianity itself on this Christmas Eve, we were talking earlier about the, the, the founding fathers and the distortion of, of the separation of church and state, the First Amendment, with Jefferson being a deist, and that's the last thing that Mike Johnson and, and these Christian nationalists understand. They have this fantasy version that David Barton has provided them with, but so the intellectual spark of the uh, revolution, um, Thomas Paine said that belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. And why did so much of American Christianity have that sort of fire and brimstone punitive bent? Well, I, I you know, in, in Shadow Network, I take it back to the Civil War because a lot of the Protestant denominations that... Uh, took off in the early 19th century had fairly distinct branches in the North and South. 
And the reason we've got Southern Baptists today is because the Baptists got together and said, if you're a slave owner, you can't be uh, an official in the church. And this, the Baptists of the South said, well, that doesn't work for us. And they split off and formed the Southern Baptist Church in order to defend slavery and their role as slave owners. And that happened with other Protestant denominations as well. It's just that most of the others joined up again after the Civil War. Right now, we've got another division taking place in Protestant denominations where the Methodists are now undergoing a split. And this time it's about policies concerning LGBT populations. Same thing with the Episcopalians. And I think that there is this fear in Protestant congregations that they're losing membership. They're losing uh, the younger church attendees and that's happening with the Southern Baptists as well. Um, and in the meantime, you have this incredibly rapid growth among the Pentecostals. Um, and the Pentecostal movement actually took off in your neck of the woods in Los Angeles in the early 20th century and is less formally organized than these other churches. So pretty much anybody can hang out a shingle and say, I'm a Pentecostal preacher and here, this is my church. And by the way, now we're tax exempt, right? So now the Republicans are making great efforts to mobilize these congregations. Um, and they include a lot of African-Americans and Hispanics and have become a real growth area for the Republican vote. And again, you don't really see the Democrats tuning into this. They just look at the erosion of the African-American vote and wonder what happened. Well, isn't there a fusion, though, of capitalism and Christianity in the prosperity gospel? You've got this uh, this mega church guy. Um, and... Well, there are so many of them. I mean, and they have private jets and they take money from <laughs> impoverished right. widows and orphans right. at, you know, for their own and, and, you know, for me, it's ironic because, yeah. you know, the one time in the Bible when Jesus got really mad was driving the money changers from the temple. Right. And if he saw these guys, you know, on on the grift in what is called a church, I, mm. I can't imagine he would have been very happy. <laughs> right. I remember his name now. It's Osteen. Uh, and Osteen. Joel Osteen. Yeah. Joel, that's right. And his his mantra is. God doesn't want you to be a whiner. God wants you to be a winner. Well, and I, I attended some of these churches as part of my research for Shadow Network. And I, you know, lo and behold, they have these giant screens where they say, you can text your donation into this number and God will reward you tenfold. And everybody takes out their cell phones and starts you know, doing you know, PayPal transfers. <laughs> And and then sit back and wait for the, the, the you know, <laughs> the manna to fall on them. And it doesn't. But, but what people don't understand is that a lot of what people are seeking is psychological. So I talk about these older white Protestant high propensity voters or people who are driven to the polls. And maybe they don't get the money coming back at them tenfold. 
but they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel somebody sympathizes with them and is making them a priority, right? And psychologically, that's very powerful. And beyond that, they also give them someone to blame. So if they're not doing very well, particularly, they're told it's because Biden is mishandling the economy. Now, they're not reading professional journalism and looking at the actual figures on the economy. But if they can't afford a new car this year, they can say, oh, the economy has crashed, which is not true. And the reason is Biden, which is not true. And they feel better about themselves. Well, just in closing then on this uh, Christmas Eve and short of Jesus returning and smiting these heretics from the temple, what is the answer here in terms of, of a renewal of the true meaning of, and, and purpose and story of the, of the prophet Jesus? Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's all there in the text. You know, what these people who are documented in the documentary Bad Faith are saying is that if you don't worship like us, you have no value in our society. Mm. Now, who did Jesus hold up in the Bible as the role model? Not the Pharisees, not the money changers in the temple. It was, it was the Good Samaritan who was not of his faith, but who did the right thing. Right. And right. so... You know, it's it's all there if you take just a moment to look for it. And it's also possible to see that the way these people are trying to use Christianity to divide our country is is damaging both to our system of government and to Christianity. There are many people who are saying that they are, you know, that that they, they resent Christianity. And you say, well, wait a minute, you resent something quite reasonably, but but be a little bit more factual about what exactly it is that you're resenting. Well, Anne, we've uh, run out of time, and I appreciate you joining us here on this Christmas Eve. Great. Well, good to talk to you, and uh, yeah, I wish you a lovely day. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Anne Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she will be speaking at the Palm Springs International Film Festival on January the 10th about the new film Bad Faith, Christian Nationalism's War on Democracy, which is based on her book Shadow Network. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into what will bring us together as we celebrate the holidays. There will come a payday, hallelujah, what a payday. There will come a payday someday, someday. There will come a payday, hallelujah, what a payday. There will come a payday someday. When I lay my work by, I have a home in the sky, for there will come a payday someday. 
Where no interest comes due or notes to renew. Oh, there will come a payday someday. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Astra Taylor, a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She's the director of What is Democracy? and the author of Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winner, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She's the co-founder of The Debt Collective, and her latest book just out is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Welcome to Background Briefing, Astra Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Astra, and... Just a few days ago, the Republican contenders had a, a debate of sorts. It was more like a, you know, just a sort of wild <laughs> argument. Um, quite embarrassing, frankly. Um, and of course, the main person, Donald, shoot them in the legs. Trump was not there. But it struck me that the, you know, this adulation of former President Reagan obviously was the reason why they chose that venue, even though today's in today's Republican Party, Reagan would be ostracized as a rhino. But I'm bringing it up because one of the least understood legacies of Ronald Reagan was that prior to Reagan, people's wages were going up in concert with inflation, etc. And the American economy was a savings-based economy. But Reagan changed all of that by making debts freely available where the banks got money from the Fed at 2% and loaned it back to people at 18.5%. And this has sort of created an indentured society and uh, it's also created the illusion that you're keeping pace and your standard of living is being maintained not by increased wages but by the availability of credit. So is that the trap that was laid back then? And it's obviously been very, very profitable for the banks. Yes. Um, I mean, Reagan is absolutely a, a pivotal figure in the history of indebtedness and the history of, of material insecurity in this country, though the story doesn't originate with him. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, during Reagan's presidency, the number of millionaires skyrocketed, as did the number of, of unhoused people. Uh, and those are trends that have have continued. Uh, it was also the period when the Supreme Court struck down usury laws, so you know, um, further uh, deregulating the financial sector. Um, and of course, you know, Reagan famously set the stage for the evisceration of, of various welfare supports that then the neoliberal Democrats continued. You know, he attacked welfare queens and uh, also. Uh, welfare bums who were students attending um, colleges and universities without having to pay high tuition or take on enormous amounts of debt. But he's just one note in the story. Um, you know, debt has has been used as a tool of um, amassing profit, a tool of social control, and a tool of racial domination going back to the colonial days. Um, you know, and I'm sitting here actually talking to you from Canada, my motherland, uh, and uh, it was just revealed that Canadian households have the highest ratios of indebtedness of any G7 country. So the the 
the model that you know Reagan, in in collaboration with Margaret Thatcher, who was uh, prime minister in, during roughly the same period, um, perfected a kind of neoliberal neoliberal government of austerity, of you know attacking the welfare state, attacking labor unions, and emboldening uh, corporate interests. You know has had global consequences, um, and so you know we're seeing it um, here uh, in Canada as well, not just the U.S. Well, the global consequences are that since 2020, the richest 1% have captured nearly two-thirds of all new wealth globally, almost twice as much money as the rest of the world's population. And at the beginning of last year, it was estimated that 10 billionaire men possess six times as much wealth as the poorest 3 billion people on Earth. In the United States, the richest 10% of households own more than 70% of the country's assets. So... Is this a new form of feudalism uh, in the sense that you've got this vast peasantry around the world, roiling peasantry, and then you've got above that, you've got a thin sliver of the wealth protection industry of, of accountants and lawyers, and then on top of that, you've got a handful of billionaires. Is that a, a fair picture of the, the world we live in? <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a fair picture of of American society in in 2023. Um, you know what I find very terrifying is that this is a, a bad situation that can get worse. We have a kind of arms race among the billionaire class to become the first trillionaire. Um, you know, and this is really what I'm talking about in in my latest book, The Age of Insecurity, is that we are when there's no floor and there's no ceiling um, on poverty or wealth. You know, then you you never have enough. Um, you know, we have. Uh, uh, an economic system, capitalism that is is fueled by greed, um, and so the incentives propel even people who have more money than they could spend in many many lifetimes to keep trying to amass amass more. Um, and you know, feudalism is certainly uh, one way of, of describing it. Though you know, maybe we need a, a new a new vocabulary. Um, but you know, this is part of why uh, organizing to transform the economic and political system that en enables this grotesque concentration of wealth is so critical because as bad as things are, um, they can continue to decline unless we intervene. And of course, on top of that, you have at home the threat of authoritarianism in the form of uh, a fascist takeover of the country by the Orange Duce, Donald Trump, who controls the Republican Party and, of course, <laughs> was absent at the uh, ridiculous food fight they had the other night um, <laughs> because he's so far ahead he doesn't need to. So the, the, not only was it ridiculous, uh, I had to watch it, Astra, because it's part of my job, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately it was also irrelevant. So you've got authoritarianism at home and an ecological emergency at a global level. So... Mm. And then, of course, on top of that, you've got the the broader landscape of feudalism that we've just talked about. So let's talk a little about the book in the sense that, just to abbreviate, quoting from the book, today, many of the ways we try to make ourselves and our societies more secure, money, property, possessions, police, the military, have paradoxical effects, undermining the very security we seek and accelerating harm done to the economy, the climate, and people's lives, including our own. So that's the trap, right? That is the age of insecurity as things fall apart. So let's talk about things falling apart, and then later, obviously, uh, on a more hopeful night, note 
about coming together. Indeed, I mean this this book uh, is my presentation of a you know a, a, a lens through which I think we can understand many of our current predicaments. Um, you know, you began uh, to lay out just what a crisis of inequality we're living in, the fact that a handful of billionaire men control more wealth than billions of people on this fragile and collapsing planet. Um, and I think it's absolutely important to pay attention to inequality. Um, but my emphasis on insecurity stems from the fact that insecurity is actually how inequality is lived day after day. It's the spike of shame when a, a debt collector calls. It's the apprehension about uh, ecological catastrophe. It's our foreboding about retirement and the fact that we will never be able to retire. We won't be able to rest. It's it's the anxiety you hear in people's voices when they talk about the fact that they can't, they can't pay rent. They'll never have the money to, uh, to buy a house. Uh, and, and I think this is a, um, you know, I'm an organizer and a writer, and I think it's really important to recognize that economic issues are always also emotional ones um, and, and that we need to speak to people in that way because authoritarians speak to people's emotions. They speak to and poke and intensify people's fears and then misdirect them. They take advantage of the fact that there's systemic insecurity and say, look, look how fragile you are. So fear immigrants, fear trans people, fear professors, um, you know, fear protesters for racial justice, um, instead of looking at the economic elites who are making your lives so miserable and so tough. And then they say, you know, and then you know, our system says, yes, you know, the way the path to security um, is ultimately to buy into these systems that destabilize, that paradoxically destabilize the economy. So if, if you want to have a chance at retirement, invest in your 401k, even if the stocks in that 401k are probably, you know, only accelerating carbon, carbon emissions or their companies that are pursuing very unjust labor practices. And so I, you know, this, this book is an attempt to, to say, look, security, material security is something we all need. Providing it will have many beneficial effects. It will alleviate a lot of stress and suffering. And I think mitigate the appeal of authoritarian strongmen, because when people are more material, materially secure, there is evidence that they are less susceptible to this kind of faux right, right wing uh, reactionary populism, um, and we'll, we'll all be better off in the end. <laughs> and truthfully, I think even the billionaires will be better off if they are no longer billionaires. Their wealth is redistributed, and they can, you know, start living a bit bit more normally. Um, I think it would actually uh, be good for them too. Well, of course, two of the richest men on the planet are from Silicon Valley: mm -hmm. Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. And Zuckerberg's solution. And I'm sure Musk also shares in this techno-utopian nonsense. Mm. And that is the idea that Zuckerberg wants everybody to have have his helmet on living in a yeah. artificial, virtual AI world and living off, you know, essentially everybody gets a token because there's no work because robots do all the all the work. And that seems to be the vision that they're offering up. I mean, it's obviously the dystopian, but opposite of your book. But is this, you know, a future we want? Oh, I mean, it's absolutely not a future we want. And, you know, it's it's true. Zuckerberg is offering us a, you know, a, a mediated 
future where we're all basically inside the metaverse and therefore, you know, every activity we do is part of his profit extraction machine. And then Elon Musk was recently doing one of these ridiculous, you know, tours of the border to basically inflame this idea that there's a crisis of immigration, <laughs> no, ma- no matter that he's actually an immigrant um, and he's the one causing He's someone helping to to cause uh, his class and 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 the politics that you know he and others like him are pursuing is, is what's causing the actual crisis um, that so many people are suffering from. I mean, so so absolutely, these people are you know they're they're absurd, but they're incredibly destructive, and they are invested in what I call manufactured insecurity. They are they their business model. Um, I mean, look at Facebook, right? The algorithm feeds you content that makes you more fearful, that makes you feel like you're lacking, that you need to buy things because obviously it's an advertising driven platform. Um, you know, Twitter does does much of the same. Musk himself is always peddling fear. So these guys are, you know, they're they're very much invested in, in keep keeping uh, and deepening the insecurity producing status quo because it's pr- profitable for them. And they are absolutely not the people who should be writing the blueprint prints for our future. Uh, and I'm hoping that we're at a tipping point where people begin to take them less seriously. I mean, it's a little alarming that the biography of Elon Musk is the number one book at this moment. Um, but hopefully people are reading it and becoming deeply disillusioned. <laughs> so I find it extraordinary, though, that young people in this country are indentured before they even get a job, that we've created a system, or at least Wall Street's created a system, where instead of investing in students as centers of investment for the future of the student and the country, they become centers of profit. And economists point out that it's insane that if you indent your kids before they get a job and saddle them with a lifetime of debt, and and of course there's this other racket, these for-profit universities Mm -hmm. that saddle these kids with a lifetime of debt and give them worthless diplomas, and that's on the taxpayer's dime, by the way. So the debt's come due now, right, thanks to the Supreme Court. I think in a yeah. few days' time, isn't it, that yes. students are going to be back paying off this debt that's uh, going to weigh yes. them down forever? Yes, indeed. Um, you know, the Debt Collective, which is the Union for Debtors I helped found, has been leading the fight for student debt cancellation for over a decade. And... Um, you know, always felt that President Biden's proposed plan for canceling up to $20,000 per borrower under a certain income threshold was inadequate. But, you know, but it wasn't nothing. It was going to be the largest uh, progressive transfer of wealth in the last century, um, $450 billion if it had happened, which is why the right wing pulled out all the stops. You know, they uh, billionaire backed think tanks, um, and uh, billionaire-supported uh, public officials launched lawsuits, teed them up with Trump-appointed judges, you know, because our judiciary is so corrupt, and basically got fast-tracked to the Supreme Court, where, in the words of the um, uh, liberal minority, the conservative supermajority violated the Constitution to strike cancellation down. So you're exactly right. Payments are being turned back down, back on, uh, and those payments are going to be on, it seems, uh, despite a government shutdown, I mean, they're so determined to try to get uh, get these payments from students, which is, you know, we now know is very cruel because the government has not been collecting student loan payments since the beginning of the pandemic when President Trump issued a student loan payment pause. So we know the government doesn't need to be collecting money 
for people to pay back their student loans. Because as you're saying, education should be an investment. Um, uh, this is not an economic necessity. So what is it? It's a political project designed to control rising generations. And this takes us back to Ronald Reagan, who you began with. It was Ronald Reagan who actually set the machinery of student debt in motion when, as governor of California, before he became president, he began waging war on students, particularly on students um, at the University of California in Berkeley, but he essentially implemented policies across the state to uh, charge tuition for the first time because tuition was was free. There were just nominal fees. And he did it explicitly to tamp down political unrest. He said, those who are paying tuition will think twice before they carry a picket sign. Um, and he really understood that that tuition and debt would be a form of social control and would help uh, create a more obedient um, student body and obedient workforce. And we've been living in Reagan's world ever since. And that's, you know, and the Debt Collective is, is dedicated to challenging that paradigm and recognizing and recognizing, as you say, that education is an essential democratic right. It should not be a commodity. It's something that we should all be entitled to. So let's talk a little bit in the last couple of minutes here about not so much about how things are falling apart, which we've covered, but how how we can come together. And, and mm. just again to quote from you, recognizing our shared existential insecurity and understanding how it is currently used against us can be the first step towards forging solidarity. Solidarity, in the end, is one of the most important forms of security we can possess, the security of confronting our shared predicament as humans on this planet in crisis together. I should have you read my audio book. You know, I, I distinguish in the book between what two kinds of insecurity. One, that which the section you just read refers to, which I call existential insecurity, we're all insecure by virtue of being vulnerable, fragile, mortal creatures. We're creatures who need care throughout our lives. We're always interdependent. You know, none of us are self-made, let alone self-reliant. You know, we can be wounded psychologically or physically. We are insecure. And this is actually a beautiful thing. We can recognize our commonalities. We can take care of each other. I distinguish that from what I called manufactured insecurity, which is the kind of material insecurity that's imposed on us because it benefits the ruling class. Um, the fact that you know workers are kept insecure at the job so that they will be uh, less inclined to ask for better wages or treatment or to strike. The way consumers are kept insecure so they will keep buying things and, and feeling as though they do not have enough, um, uh, you know, always uh, on that treadmill of consumption. Um, and, you know, as an organizer, what I what I see is that insecurity can cut both ways. There's a way that insecurity um, can be harnessed by reactionary authoritarian right wing movements, as I said, you know, when there are unscrupulous politicians who are ready to um, exacerbate um, people's fears, you know, uh, you know, and, and of course, you know, networks, right wing media networks that are willing to do the same. So insecurity can be a, a real boon to the right wing. But you know, insecurity is also the basis of so many wonderful progressive causes. I mean, we see this at the Debt Collective, where financially insecure and vulnerable debtors come together, um, overcome the shame and stigma of being poor, and find solidarity in in their uh, circumstances. Um, so one of our slogans is, you are not alone, A space L-O-A-N. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is... You know, so when we when we show our underbellies and we admit that we're struggling, that's actually how you build the solidarity 
um, that then, of course, needs to be wielded strategically with organization, you know, in a, in a, in a <laughs> to, to create, you know, structural political change. But it really is about insecurity. It's about saying, hey, I'm I'm discriminated against or, you know, I'm being exploited. Um, I'm, you know, I just cannot I can't do it. I can't pay my bills. I can't be like, you know, I cannot go another day or I'm terrified about what the uh what's in store given the acceleration of climate change, you know, that's where you start. That's where organizing begins and that honesty and that vulnerability. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Astra Taylor. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Astra Taylor, who's a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She's the director of What is Democracy and the author of Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winner, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. And she's the co-founder of The Debt Collective. And her latest book just out is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.